Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Dana. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out why you don't fit in with that crowd and why it's a good thing. Welcome to Gaming on the Podcast. This podcast is a a system agnostic, game agnostic. We talk about everything. So uh, we're here now to talk about breaking conventions with uh, ethnicity and race and profession and everything else. In other words, how to play your character against type if that's what you want to do and how to make it not only fun but make sense. Why don't we start first about um, uh, what's one of the number one criterias for making a good character? Trav? Well, a solid, well, like with any building, a solid foundation. In most campaigns, it often goes with race and class. If you have such a game, you know, like D&D, you have the seven core races. Human, dwarf, elf, gnome, halfling, half-elf, and half-orc. And with your classes, barbarian, bard, cleric, fighter, monk... Paladin, Ranger, Rogue, Sorcerer, and Wizard. You have that combination of race and class, and you get a certain idea set in your mind, and you build upon it with skills and whatever things that are that the mechanics call for, edges, feats, advantages, whatever, until you come up with the finished product. Except it takes a lot more than that, Trav. It also takes religion... It takes um, uh, it takes uh, what country or what part of the world that you come from. It it, uh, it it comes from social background, where you stand in the social ladder, um, educational background, financial background. And in other words, what I'm looking for is that you need a really broad understanding of your character, because otherwise, all you're going to have are what we were talking about, the stereotypes to build your character from. And even with the stereotypes, I'm always, and this is always going to be my position, I know, but I'm always of the opinion that the number one thing you should be looking at when you're making your character is how much fun it's going to be to play it. You know, and a lot of times going against that, you know, that metagaming sort of thought process of, okay, if I have a half-orc, he's going to be a barbarian or he's going to be a fighter, right? Because he's big and strong. But, you know, it's more fun to play that half-orc that's like a sorcerer or a wizard or something that just defies all of the stereotypes because then you get to have that extra little bit of fun when the NPCs are kind of staring at you saying, wait, you're you're a half-orc wizard you know <laughs> it just ends up being fun so you're saying that you consider going against stereotypes and conventions to be the extra fun of creating a character yeah okay again i um again i think it might be this is another one of those topics that that i often dub for advanced gamers because there's a lot of people who come in and i, I will give my daughter as a perfect example my daughter was in several of my campaigns probably now 10 years ago, and she had this thing for female elven archers, and she nailed it. There were three separate campaigns. It was all the same thing, a female blonde elven archer. But she had that down, and she still varied it enough to make each character separate, unique, but I think also the, the particular settings they were in helped. But still, she just, that was her thing. Mm -hmm. Usually we fall upon those stereotypes and conventions in order, 
we just feel, especially newer gamers, it's like, oh, okay, we know that this racing class combination is often like this. I'll go with this. It's easy for me to start out with. As you gain experience, you start, you know, experimenting. Like with how rock bands, they have a certain sound for like six albums. They've been out for 20 years and then for they'll do two or three albums that are experimental and different mm -hmm. just to, you know, stretch their legs. And then they'll go back to their sound. U2 is a perfect example of that. So, yeah, I think this is another one of those more for advance. I mean, I'm not saying beginning players, you know, can't play a half-orc bard or, yeah. you know, an oh, elven barbarian. Well, what was that, Dana? I said that would be fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying that this would be something more advanced gamers would come to mind with after they've been playing the same type of characters and they want to reach out and go, okay, let's try this. Let, let's tweak this one thing and see how this goes. Well, I disagree that it's something for advanced gamers. I think it's something that advanced gamers should help the fledgling gamers do. But uh, it's, I think that it's, it's more important for the gamer to gain an understanding of who it is that they are playing. As they used to say in NASCRAG when we had the tournaments at Gen Con, he says, "What well, you know, no matter what else happens in this tournament, what we recommend more than anything else is to grab that character sheet in front of you, look at what you got, and play it for all you're worth. What's on the sheet, plus everything else that you can bring to the table, what you know, whatever whatever you can fit in, and." That's you know the, the 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 personal involvement of the player in playing a character is tantamount to everything else because you can you know uh, essentially play a, a fighter as a fighter as a fighter and a wizard as a wizard as a wizard you know and all you are is basically the phys the the meat part of carrying around your spell book or swinging your sword or you can be so much more so we're we're. We want people, if we want people to play these games and not be, you know, basically playing, you know, Diablo or whatever, which, you know, which is why I say we play role-playing games, is to play these deeper levels of characterization and uh, essentially acting. And you need to be able to put something of yourself and you need to be able to embrace that character and I think that's something for even beginner players. They may not do it to the level or complexity of an advanced uh, player, but they still can do it. They at least grab onto one thing and make it work. I get that. I get that. So before we actually get into like the various races, I wanted to talk about some of the things that you can do in order to change up the way things happen. Okay? And this, this can happen irregardless of all the other parts, like profession or uh, or 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 race, okay. Uh, and by race, I, in D and D, it's class, but it's still profession. I'm sorry, I think I said that backwards. But anyways, uh, in uh, in and that's basically to look at you know what's what are the classic roles in a family because almost every drama is essentially a family, even though it may have people who are not related. So. You, in the family, you have the father figure, you have the mother figure, you have the children, okay? And, uh, and these are subservient roles, but they also allow, you know, the, they carry other things. Like, for example, the father is going to be more protective, uh, is usually, or is going to be the initiator, okay? The mother may be, may be more protective or more nurturing, okay? A child will, can have a sense of innocence to them. They could be a little bit more naive, okay? At the same time, they could be more uh, uh, emotionally or verbally energetic because, uh, or just physically energetic because that's what kids are like. All right, and so if you basically take your character and say, which of these roles do I want to be, then uh, you can regard you can then take that and apply it to the, the 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 other template, which is profession and race and other things, and use that as to to generate you know a lot of differences in your characters. Um, another thing is is that uh, children are split into two categories. There's the class clown, and then there's the 
class, I'm sorry, there's the child clown and there's the child genius. So, you know, the, the person who's uh, precocious, the one who's real, you know, who's really, really smarter than they should be, uh, maybe knows about a, an area that nobody else would expect them to know about. Or, of course, the one that always cracks wise. Okay, and uh, the one who's um, always trying to bring levity or, you know, uplift people through actions. Uh, a class genius can also be someone who's extremely talented in the area. For example, music. Uh, so, for example, your bard is actually a lot of times is played as more like of the child, you know, uh, genius or the child uh, um, scientist or whatever, uh, rather than some of the other roles. So this is something that's this out of actual screenwriting. Uh, it was first introduced to me by um, I've forgotten his name. One of the, the the guy that's the 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 male part of uh, of the uh, Dragonland saga, not Weiss, but the other guy, Tracy Hickman. Tracy Hickman. He introduced this at a big seminar at GenCon, saying these stereo not stereotypes, but these these constructs can be used to change what you think you know, your, your characters will be because a lot, because sometimes it's so obvious, right? You know, I'm going to play the wizard, wizard old, uh, mage. Okay. Everyone's thinking Gandalf. All right. But then you say, no, but I'm going to apply this on top of it. Now he's not Gandalf anymore. Now he's, uh, I don't, I mean, <laughs> now he's, now he's some, cra some crazy goofy wizard. Mike Ermintrout. Well, uh, it's less a wizard, but uh, like older figures can can have completely different attitudes. You have your your Gandalfs who are you know wise and always saying something wise, and then you have your your more older. Uh, well, uh, I've seen everything that there is to see, and so now I'm a little bit jaded. I I, I mentioned Mike Ermintrout because that's the the guy the character that comes to mind. He's from Breaking Bad. He's like this old uh fixer of sorts he's been around he's been doing this for for years he's an ex-cop and he's seen everything and done everything and so he's kind of jaded but you know he is old and he is really wise and he knows all of these things and so he kind of fits the stereotype without acting like the stereotype if you know what i mean who's the mage that's in monty python and the holy grail uh tim channer tim Tim, yeah, the mage called Tim. Okay, not Gandalf. All right, <laughs> he's definitely not Gandalf. All right? No, 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 no. So I'm just saying, doing stuff like that is one way. Uh, you know, and you can you can do that by saying, okay, I'm going to play this character, but I'm going to play him according to the uh, you know the template of let's say a character out of a show or movie that you know very well. And so you, they provide all those little fiddly bits that you can do to, as I say, break and go against type. Because everyone's seen the type. Everyone knows what the stereotypes are. And though they're comfortable, they're boring. So what, that's why we're talking about how to break them and do them successfully. Now, i got to ask a question here. The stereotypes are there for a reason, okay? And that is, is that the majority, if you have a stereotype, that means that the majority of that whatever it's a stereotype is, are that way. And so if everybody that you ever run into in a game is basically breaking from the stereotype, then the stereotype doesn't hold anymore. If dwarves are supposed to be dour uh, and, and uh, unfunny and st stiff and stuck up and uh, hate elves, okay, first of all, he says... A lot of them have to be that way because that's why there's the, you know, unless, of course, it's pure propaganda by the other side, okay? And stereotypes are actually totally acceptable in the case of where you're in at war with somebody else because that's what the first thing that a smart nation does is, is they go and they demonize their opponent because, oh, yeah. it, it makes it, because it makes it easier for someone to then go and kill them. Because they're no longer nice people. They're no longer good guys. They may not even be considered human anymore. Okay? Or, or whatever passes for human in your fantasy or science fiction world. So, you know, 
in the case of a war, you should expect all kinds of stereotypical stuff. And so, yeah, when you run into somebody and they don't fit that, then, of course, you know, not only is it reasonable to happen from a, from a, a dramatic standpoint, it's, uh, you know, it, you, maybe you should show some surprise at that because you have been getting this line from your, your, or, you know, your, your leaders your, uh, who are, and, and, but at the same time, there should be lots of people who actually do fit the stereotype because that's you know that's one of the reasons there are stereotypes is because there's a lot of people that hear about it. these guys of behavior they see it and they um, and they generalize it to the population at large so it's okay to have stereotypes is what I'm trying to say you know we we uh, we, we live in America and we're all about equal rights and 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 being affirming and stuff like that but that's you know sometimes it it has a tendency to kind of water down our uh, uh, you know, the things that we want to use for dramatic reasons, you know, did, did, was anybody happy with uh, the uh, kind of the warm and fuzzy version of um, oh, uh, Ming the Merciless in the television version of Flash Gordon? Oh, um, the, the, the sci-fi version? No, he was a, a PR guy that, yeah, publicly he was great, but behind the scenes he was, yeah. And it, I understand for the times, that's what people would understand. But if you're comparing against the old pulp Flash Gordon. Flash, ah! Yeah, you got it. Oh, yeah. But I, I understand they wanted to do it for today's society. Problem is, we all know how Ming looked. In, in even in the the movie to which Bruce just alluded to, it was that old stereotype of the quote-unquote inscrutable Oriental, which just wouldn't fly today. So I understand why they changed it, but if, you, if you'd if never seen Flash Gordon or didn't know of that old version of Ming, you might have liked that version. But most of us were around long enough to know the old Flash Gordon and just were going, no, that's not Ming. So I saw what they did, and I liked it for that, but I hearkened back to the older versions and even the Max von Sydow version. I just went, no. So it was, it was a very mixed bag, and I can see why that series only lasted a season and a half on sci-fi. Just, it was, eh. Yeah, we, we got to see behind the scenes, so we knew how terrible Ming really was, but everybody else saw him as this great... You know, South Savior. He basically saved, but you know, brought stability to the 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 world he was on. And and even though he was ruthless at times, everyone still saw him as doing what was necessary, and always had everybody's real, you know, uh, the good of everybody at, at at hand when he was doing those things. But we got to see behind the curtains and saw how how uh, full of uh, rot he really was. Well, there. There was an old phrase that my old criminology teacher used to say, and you talked about how he had everything going his his way of order. When somebody is preaching on on the campaign trail about law and order, you can throw justice out the window. And that was pretty much it. Yeah, he had made sure his world was stable, but you pretty much knew his prisons were probably full of the people that disagreed with him, too. Right. So, Dana, this guy, you know, I mean, we, we got to see behind the scenes because we're watching a show. But in a role-playing game, can we do that? I mean, you know, or, or do we need that stereotype to reinforce the fact that this is the enemy and we need to go, we need to take this enemy on to, to basically keep our resolve? Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm something of a a fan of storytelling, especially in role playing. So um, I kind of feel like if you don't know, it's just as good a, a good DM and not saying necessarily that a good DM can't make the mistake of not doing this, but a good DM can have a character that's deep like that to where it's possible for his characters to find out, well, Hey, he's not quite as awful as he seems, but at the same time, won't just throw that information out there. The characters will have to wor work for it, to where it's entirely possible that the characters could blunder through and destroy this person that they see as the ultimate evil, when in fact, 
he was that complicated, that complex, you know, uh, bad guy who's doing bad things for good reasons. Like, uh, the, like what, what was it? The, the first yellow lantern, uh, Sinestro, you know, yeah. that sort of thing where he's like, he's not actually necessarily evil, but he wants order over everything. He wants things to be orderly. And when you actually look at his societies after all is said and done, you find out that while there was this first part where people were rebelling against him, after he was done with everything he was done, his societies were happy and orderly and people knew they were safe, you know? Yeah, the trains the trains always ran on time in, in Nazi Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Ooh, good analogy. Yeah. Mm. He says, you always got to be careful with the lawful awful. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, but that's what I'm saying, though, is the stereotypes also give us something to, to, to bounce our own character concepts off of. Because, you know, if the bad guys are really evil, or at least they seem really evil... Then that then later on when you actually can introduce things like um, you know uh, surprise you know a, 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 an unusual turn uh, then uh, you know it's all the more you know poignant all the more impactful because of the stereotype. For example, I have you know Steve Wallace. A drama deck, and I use it in every game session we play. And 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 uh, Dana knows about this deck, uh, and and how. And I I especially use it because I want people to think outside the box. I want them to see the possibilities where before they may not have seen them. So these cards will say something like. Even though you did something terrible, somebody has secretly fallen in love with you because of it, and that's going to drive something to happen as a result. Or, you know, there's a, there's a huge explosion, but, you know, it turns out that it actually was for the good, you know, and, and all kinds of twists and turns are introduced by these cards. Uh, some of them are real, real basic, but a lot of them have this kind of really twistiness to them. And, and that's something that a lot of players, especially new players, have a hard time doing because, you know, they're so focusing down on trying to handle the mechanics, handle the basic uh, minutiae of their character that they, they can't, you know, a lot of times it's very really hard for them to see past that and to be, you know, do ex uh, exciting, unexpected things that make the game a lot fun, a lot more fun. Okay, that's the advantage of having stereotypes. You know, is that they're, they they make it easy to play. Uh, people have an, uh, an easier time conceptualizing uh, the motivation for the GM. The motivation of the NPCs or even the PCs become fairly obvious, and it's and and plans can be made. And, and people's reaction to those characters because those stereotypes are also predictable. And can be used in in useful ways. So, for example, is is it if you want somebody who's let's say you have somebody who's the the pillar of society, but you can convince people that he's actually, and let's say this is a racist society, and you convince them they're half some undesirable part of society. You know, uh, in in modern day, if they were half black and they were a pillar of society in 1950, that would definitely tank you as for your, your run for the governorship. So you, you, you could use these stereotypes, you know, uh, and, and essentially doing evil in order to get somebody that you didn't want in a position of power out of power uh, by using that. So they have their uses. Um, and, and, of course, this is, what is this, this is uh, uh, using evil against evil. Right, you know the the lesser of the two evils. Oh yeah, but let's let's move forward and let's start talking about the uh, the racial some of some of the examples of these racial stereotypes, so that we can talk about how you can bounce off of those things. So, uh, uh, Dana, you want to give an example? Well, uh, let's do one fun that most people know about hobbits. Okay. Um. Yeah, I mean they're. they're uh, there are second and third lunches, and theoretically voracious um, uh, uh, pacifists, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, 
Yet, yet in, 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 the, in The Hobbit, we're introduced to somebody's uncle who was actually a great war hero. Yeah. And as we could see, uh, Samwise had, was no sloucher when it came to swinging a sword. Yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of had to be forced out of their comfort zone, too. And it was kind of like once they realized that they could do what they, they were doing, uh, they, you know, they embraced that. And it kind of kind of turned out pretty well because uh, I mean uh, I mean we all know that you know in the end they they return and, and fight off the bandits that are in their town that were taking advantage of all these these little hobbits that were in their town. So why were they that way? What is it? Uh, you know why are hobbits the way they are? I mean it seemed to me like it was as much a cultural thing as anything because if you remember uh as much as Bilbo enjoyed his little time um going out there and fighting against smog and and adventuring and he was even wanting to write about it when he finally came back everyone kind of recognized that he was this adventurous type but he was also kind of ostracized as a result of it so the the hobbit society doesn't like uh adventure they don't like change. They don't like um, people. They, they they don't like people stepping outside of their um, birth roles, right? Well, most societies don't. Most societies don't like people who are different, and and you know that obviously that sort of thing should be reflected in any good story, you know that. Society as a whole is not going to accept people that step out of societal norms. There's going to be some pushback. What vertical path was there in the Hobbit society? If you were um, Samwise, for example, how, how would you become Bilbo? Well, I mean, becoming Bilbo required him to leave. Exactly. There was no, there was no path in Hobbit society for someone to become uh, a great person. Well, I mean, their idea of a great person, I think, uh, had more to do with business, right? Um, you know, and, and being a good host. But that required wealth, right? Yeah. And where are you going to get wealth if you're, if you're in Hobbit society? By being a shrewd business person. I mean, just because you... You know, and it's a common misconception people have that you, you have to be rich in order to be a business person. You just have to recognize what you have to offer and what it's worth. And then in a, in a rural society back like that, um, it's a lot more likely, at least in a rural society built the way that J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, world was, <laughs> a little bit less in real life. But in a society like that, it's a lot more likely that somebody could, say, be smart with how they, you know, with how they do their sheep or whatever like that and be able to come up with some sort of advantage. But that, of course, requires incredible intelligence and forethought, you know, and not everybody has that. So it is it's obviously going to be difficult. So, again, it's almost like an accident of birth. Yeah, it is. We wouldn't expect Samwise to ever become Bilbo because a he's not, you know, a, a, he's not a uh, what is it? I, I am a Hobbit of 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 uh, not Hob End, but whatever Bag End. You know, I'm a Bag End of Bag End, and so he 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 was expected to be a leader, and because he was the descendant of Horatio Baggins or whatever the guy's name was, you know. Uh, Gandalf used that to galvanize him in directions that he didn't feel comfortable doing. And I'm, I'm wondering about the rest of Hobbiton, you know, whether anybody there was expecting anybody to be more than what their parents were. I mean, I, they, I saw it as basically a completely stagnant society where, you know, they, they grew up, they basically replaced their parents, produced children who grew up and replaced them. And everybody was perfectly happy with that. You know, because the social order was maintained, there was no change, you know, the, the seasons came and go. As long as all these other strangeness stayed far outside, you know, of the Shire and, and the surrounding areas, everybody was happy. Even though it took a, 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 a whole legion of rangers to actually make that happen. Which is, you know, which is the part that people forget. 
is is that when uh, Gandalf left Bilbo with, um, uh, or actually at this point it was Frodo, uh, left him with the ring. He had he had he's basically set the Rangers to watch over and keep the ring safe while he was gone trying to do research to find out if it really was the true ring. So a lot of the culture that you see, the peace that they experienced during the time before the events of the Lord of the Rings was totally because they were in a bubble maintained by the ferocious protectionism of these rangers in the surrounding area. So hobbits are stereotypically big eaters, uh, they like jokes. They like to sing. Uh, they uh, like their creature comforts. They're not. They're not adventurous in any regard, and they uh, they don't like to get into combat and and anything really uh, that 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 breaks with their routine. So, and you want to play in a game with uh, a hobbit, and you want to play that. So. How do you divert from being a hobbit, yet still be a hobbit? Trav? I would say just little things like, let's say, because I see that halflings, hobbits, whatever you want to call them, and like you said, they love their creature comforts. The things that, you know, like their cakes and their pies and a good you know, pipe full of tobacco and, you know, a good pint. Have them be, they don't like halfling food. They only eat other cuisines foods or they're always getting into trouble where, you know, like, like Dana said, halfling society, everybody just does their thing. This one goes out of his way to do outrageous things. Mm-hmm. Maybe not pranks, just shakes up the status quo. Okay. It'll be a practical joker or something. Right. Well, almost any profession that's in a fantasy game is probably going to break free of that Hobbit mold. Because only in um, The Trials of Ariana, it was was a video game, is the main character a farmer. It goes by the name of Farmer, the entire video game. But they stopped actually being a farmer the first time they picked up a sword or cast a spell and killed, you know, one of the the evil uh, goblin-like creatures that were marauding in the land. So any profession that you might take in usually any fantasy or science fiction game is going to rip you out of Hobbit society because there's no place for that person in their society, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So that makes it easy because, I mean, basically you're, you're diverting right there off the spot because of that, okay? But, I, I, but then that means you have to conserve your Hobbitism by doing things. And um, I like what you mentioned. I mean, the fact that you bring that, you know, you smoke the weed, you know, you smoke the tobacco or whatever it is. Okay. The fact that maybe you have a, a magic item that makes pies. Okay. Because you love pies and pie, you know, just like it makes it just like mama, great aunts Sophia made. Okay. And, and maybe you, you know, you always have a you know a fleece lined sleeping bag, or maybe your boots are always fleece lined. I mean, little creature comforts that other people would never. You know, that I'm walking around in my steel shod boots and my leather outfit and my you know, uh, you know, my helmet with the booming voice synthesizer on it. Okay, and meanwhile, you know, you're like, you know standing there tuning your voice synthesizer <laughs> up and down. I don't like that tone. I, it, just, it doesn't really bring out my, my singing voice and stuff. So <laughs> you know, things like that allow you to, to maintain the stereotype while still diverting from it. Mm-hmm. So uh, and I like that, okay? But, um, and, and yes, yes, you are, I mean, yes, troublemakers. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, as we know from Lord of the Rings uh, with Pippin and and uh, his, his his partner in crime, Mary Meridoc. Uh, There's some people that just get into trouble until I guess they settle down, because <laughs> they're quite young hobbits, as I recall. Oh yeah, not children, but but basically uh, what would be considered to be uh, you know troubled youth. Okay. Hellraisers and such. So uh, yeah, they're they're that way. 
I, I think anybody who exhibited any kind of a strong passion in Hobbit society would find themselves being looked at as slightly askance. So if you, if you were someone who was a really devout believer in a religion in Hobbit society, I think that, you know, they might say, well, okay, but calm down there. Those things should be done in private. <laughs> no need to involve the rest of us. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, right? Am I wrong? It's, it's a, so, so yeah, so that's, I, I see that as, as a way of doing that. You know, um, now let's, uh, so let's pick another one. Uh, let's pick something out of science fiction. Let's let's pick a droid out of Star Wars. There we go. Okay, we we got a good example in Solo of, uh, uh, even though it was a little bit too, too on point about a droid that basically was aware of how much socially they were disadvantaged. You know that they were second class citizens, and uh, and she the the person who ultimately became the. Uh, uh, the data, the, the stellar database in the uh, Millennium Falcon. Spoilers. <laughs> she uh, she was very much um, you know contentious that she should re- she should be receiving these rights that she didn't seem to think that she could get for herself. As a matter of fact, she had a gender. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, up till then, either you might have thought as. Uh, uh, R2D2 and and uh, 3CPO was being male because they because 3CPO had a kind of a male voice. They, there was no reason to think that way. Pretty sure there were other like female-ish droids that you see throughout the the uh, the movies, but they aren't prominent. You know, and there's their gender, of course, is not important to who they are. It's more uh, an aspect of whatever their creators wanted them to be. But it was very interesting to see her. And then I also like the one on Rogue One as another good example. Uh, the the wisecracking. C- uh, cynical? Yeah. Oh, K2SO, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me so much of Marvin, the, uh, uh, you know, the mag-depressed... An- uh, Android from uh, yes. you know the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the uh, from the from the audio bu- uh, book, it was he was so marvelous, you know the the actor who played him uh, because he just brought that that droll stuff out so much, you know. It's every time every time he said something that that, that surprised somebody, he says, "Didn't I tell you that I have a brain the size of a planet?" <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah, and then go and just totally dismiss him. You know, which is one of the reasons I suppose he was. I mean, was he uh, was he paranoid uh, and, and manic depressed because people treated him that way, or was he that way already? And everyone just kind of picked up off of it and just you know abused him subconsciously. I don't know, but okay. So here we you know here we have an android. All right. So we've got somebody who doesn't eat or sleep, or or drink or engage in bodily functions of any kind. Okay, that uh, only occasionally do they have to engage in any kind of maintenance. They're expected to be totally subservient to anyone who is their master, to not object to having a restraining bolt put onto them, uh, to to be bought and sold uh, without any care in the world for it happening. I mean, in every way, they're slaves. And they're supposed to be happy about it because they're made, not birthed, right? Okay, so how do you how do you bring that across? How do you how do you divert from that while still maintaining that, you know that that you know that that of who they are? Because obviously, any profession that they have is not is except maybe social worker uh, is probably, you know, in the game is probably not going to, uh, is not going to be a problem with that. I mean, they could be an astrogator. They could be a fighter. They could be uh, a doctor. They could, they could be um, a mechanic, all those roles, you know, they could even be a wizard, you know, they could, in one case, they, they, they could use as a, a lightsaber though. That guy was supposed to be a cyborg, but anyways, uh, so, 
profession is not a problem with these guys. Okay, it really falls into the more social interaction and possibly the legal interaction. So uh, if you want to divert from it, then we get to see how they do divert, how they're given different personalities from the, if I may use the term, drones of the rest of the, um, of the droids that you see in Star Wars because there's lots and lots and lots of them that no, you don't think twice about. Well, I think with K2SO, the the droid from Rogue One, the fact that he was an Imperial, I, I forget what type of droid, but it was an M- droid that worked for the Empire, and then Cassian came and reprogrammed it to be his first mate. That right there, the fact that it had a totally different personality than what every other standard factory model Imperial droid was, because even the stormtroopers, when they and again, spoilers, folks, Rogue Rogue One's been up for two years now. Yeah. <laughs> when K2SO was faking leading Cassian and Jin, and he's like, These are prisoners, and I'm so I um I'm taking them to uh prison. Even the stormtroopers, who we all know, and, and let's face it, in that movie they got beat with a blind by a blind man with a stick. Mm-hmm. Um they even realized, okay, something's not right here. This droid is not acting the way it is. It's still, at first, they saw it as, okay, it's one of our droids leading these two humans. And it even, I mean, he even fooled them enough by smacking Cassian. But then when he started stumbling over his words, they realized something was up. Um, that right there, the fact that he was captured and reprogrammed, and even as you heard him talk normally... It sounded like he had a bigger vocabulary than most droids of that model would have. It did seem like um, the different societies did recognize that it was possible for droids to be more than that, especially in the later movies. Well, I say later movies, uh, I mean more chronologically than when they actually you know, were made. Um, in the uh, originals, in other words, uh, you had things like the the uh, tavern on Mos Eisley that didn't accept droids. Yeah, you know, inside, uh, it seemed to me like they recognized that there was a danger for intelligent droids to to be in their midst, which kind of gives me the idea that there was more to that story than they could really put in a movie. You know, um, even if it was just being hinted at. Like, maybe there are droids out there who legitimately are self-sufficient and they know who they are and what they are. And maybe they just don't focus on that because, you know, droids of that intelligence level maybe hopefully don't uh, don't consider humanity that much of a threat or something. I don't know. Yeah, see, you got a lot more out of it than I did because I just took it as being just, you know, additional... Um, you know, classic, you know, you're, you know, you're uh, second class citizens. You don't get to uh, in- enjoy yourself in the same space as real people. Yeah. And, and it could be just as much that, you know. Um, the point is, though, if they were to consider them second class citizens, they would still have to consider them. Uh, even if they don't consider them equal, it's almost like putting them on the same footing because, like, you don't give that sort of, uh, well, taking race, for example, right? The racist doesn't give the same consideration to a dog that he gives to a, a black person. Because in his mind, a dog is just an animal, and there's nothing dangerous about having the dog around him, right? But this black person, it's not just that he doesn't feel like this person deserves to be this, he sees the potential that that person could be more than, you know, than what he wants him to be. And so he has to make that extra effort to keep him down. You uh, know? There's a lot of times I've seen people who I see as decidedly racist. They treat their pets better than they treat black people. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like they're dehumanizing them on a nasty level by I'm going to actively and overtly treat my dog regard him better mm-hmm. than I treat you, sir, a fellow human being who just happens to have a different skin color than I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was something that Bruce fought 
back earlier about dehumanizing your opponent. Yep. So, yeah. Um, but the whole thing with the in the original series, most Eisley, there's only one reason why they don't allow droids in. They can't get money from them. They don't eat. They don't drink. You're there at a bar. What are they going to do? So it's like, get out. You're, you're just taking up space for my customers that are going to pay for me to give them stuff. You're taking up room. Go outside. That's I saw that as the only reason. And back in 1977, I thought I was eight years old. And I saw, yeah, it's because he can't get any money from a droid. Nope. <laughs> He's not going to eat or drink. There's the yeah. door. And I, I agree with you, Trav. That that's, that's, that's a very strong possibility. Okay. But for all I said about the fact they don't need to eat or drink or any of those kinds of things like that, okay, we saw our uh, 3CPO go into that oil bath. It was like someone sliding into a hot bath with soap suds and things like that. You just see him going, ah. Yes. Thank the maker. Yeah. Droids can actually apparently feel pleasure because he certainly was exhibiting it. Right. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it does, but nobody ever thinks about that. There's no, uh, there are no entertainments designed in the star Wars universe for droids. Which would bring for a, a hilarious character actually would be a droid who is, you know, insistent on finding creature comforts, you know, um, like has that focus where most droids are so subservient, having that one that's all about creature comforts, maybe he's even trying to like set up some sort of uh, network of, of, you know, uh, maybe trying to network and stuff so that he has the means to get extra money to pay for that on his own. Droids with money. That's an interesting concept. Oh, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. The, the only use that the droids have used for money is, is as projectiles against other people. <laughs> oh, yes. Episode 8, yes. But when, but when droids do have society, as they did in the uh, Walt Disney movie, The Black Hole... All the, uh, all the droids on the ship actually had a whole society, and they got into competitions with each other over marksmanship. And you got and your, your place on the, in the social ladder amongst the droids was very much determined by how well you could compete in that particular tournament. And uh, in that particular movie, the, uh, the droid from the ship that was docked on this space station right next to a black hole, the new droid in town, the new gunslinger in town, and believe me, they played it up like that, was able to take down the reigning champ, you know, this 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 uh, enforcer-type droid, scary, very scary droid, and all the other droids on the ship suddenly were like looking at him saying, maybe we should be following what he says and not what... The enforcer droid says and causes a whole lot of trouble, you know, on the ship as a result. It is possible for droids and other type creatures like that to engage in these kinds of um, one-upmanship, um, um, a social level behavior, and to um, and it can actually change how they interact with each other when a new element is brought into the situation. I don't know if this would pertain to this, but it kind of makes you wonder, because droids are programmed. I mean, they are made by organic life you know, to start out with until droids, you know, start making robot factories. But it kind of makes you wonder if they have this level of this, this level of detail in their emotional and psychological makeup. It kind of makes you wonder, is it just that good a programming or are these robots all heuristic computers inside those brains or are they all fully sentient and if they're fully sentient why are they still considered second-class citizens when they are just as free-willed as any other organic sentient in the setting and maybe it's because of the way they're treated by some people. If everyone treats you like you're a cipher, then you don't care about them. But but R2D2, okay, was probably be, was pretty close to being beloved by not only Princess Leia, but especially by Luke. Yeah. And then later on you see here is someone saying, I've never seen such devotion, you know, from a uh, 
uh, from an astrodroid. You know, the guys that were working on Luke's, uh, he, says, and he says, yeah, me and this droid, we've been through a lot together. Uh, and, and even 3CPO says, you know, if, there's a, if you can use any of my parts to help him, then I'd be glad to, to offer them. So you, you, you see loyalty, you see sacrifice, you see, um, you know, long-suffering. I mean, think about, you know, we know that, that uh, R2-D2 was involved way, way back in the beginning. And so all those years, after seeing Luke after all those years, you know, I mean, at least the, the son of Skywalker and all that, this droid, this little astro droid, had, was basically a freedom fighter from the get-go, practically. Yeah. And so, yeah, he wanted to, he was doing everything he could to get Luke into the middle of the battle to be the, the person he knew Luke could be. He was, act, in many ways, he was more Luke's mentor than Obi-Wan or uh, Yoda. Because he kept getting Luke places where Luke needed to be in order to be the hero he was. Hmm. And saved his butt a lot of times, too. I mean, they never would have gotten off the... Uh, well, first of all, they all would have died in that trash compactor if it wasn't for R2-D2. And they probably wouldn't have gotten off of, you know, uh, uh, off of the Death Star without R2-D2. So, <laughs> so, yeah, you can be a droid in a classed society where you're basically considered to be second-class citizen. I mean, at no point did Luke ever think of elevating R2-D2 into the level of being a real person. He never treated him like he was, like, his best friend. He never, like, you know, asked his opinion about things. I mean, you know, he was always the the buddy, you know, like the buddy film. He was the, he was the sidekick to the hero. Well, R2-D2 still got his words of advice in. In episode eight, when Luke, you know, Luke, he was a defeated Jedi. He, again, episode eight came out a year and a half ago. No spoiler alert here. Luke was there. He was broken and defeated because Kylo Ren, Ben Solo, betrayed him and killed off all the other students. So Luke went to the, the planet, the islands, Ashto to just hide out the rest of his life. And so Ray, Chewie, and R2 came there to try to enlist him back in the fight. And after Ray and Chewie failed, R2, you know, came in and did the cheap shot of playing the old message of Leia petitioning Obi-Wan. And even Luke said, that was a cheap shot, R2. <laughs> so R2, he, I'm sorry, he was more than I mean, Luke had elevated him to a level of importance in his life because you saw the look on his face when R2 rolled up to him. He's like, R2, old friend, how are you? So, yeah, he was more than just a sidekick. Luke, the, 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 it was right. Luke and R2 had that bond, and you see it in with um, Poe and BB-8. Mm -hmm. The pilot and his astromech droid, because you know in a starfighter battle, the only person you have to depend on other than yourself is that astromech droid in the back. And so you have that that just that bond between Luke and R2, which had lasted now three decades. Right. And uh, and, and Londo and his uh, paramour. There are examples in these movies where people have formed strong emotional bonds with uh, for, with metal companions. And uh and, and so you can transcend your role as a subservient uh, step and fetch it. And that is the stereotype. The stereotype is, is that you're, you're programmed to be useful. And when you're not useful anymore, they, you know, put you on the market and sell you off to some moisture farmer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But sometimes you have a destiny. You have a, um, you have a secret mission. And you even even if someone is your owner, you're going to take off and do it. If you're playing a droid or something like that, you're going you know a way of breaking from it is a first to be very very loyal because that's part of what you expect to be. But at the same time, you know to go and follow you know follow your mission, follow whatever mission you have to uh, you know even if it goes against what your master wants. You know, and uh, make it, and, and if you can, you know, uh, you know, seduce your master into being, 
your companion on that mission as well. Because Luke had no, no reason at all to go off into the desert and meet uh, Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan certainly wasn't trying to, you know, do anything with Luke. You'd think he would have. Well, Obi-Wan had been watching Luke from afar for, you know, 18 years. So, yeah, it's just R2 knew where to, you know, get him out there. He probably knew where Obi-Wan would be. If Luke had gone off to the Imperial Academy, do you think do you think Obi-Wan would have said, oh, uh, before you go, Luke, I think I need to tell you about some stuff. Like, I'm the like last remaining member of the Resistance, and uh, the people that you want to go work for are... Well, he said everyone hates the Empire, but I mean, it was like the only game in town. As soon as he got the message, though, from Leia, it was like, oh, we have this whole other choice. you got to get on board, Luke. Yeah. And that was R2's secret mission, was to, to reach Obi-Wan. I mean, she, uh, Leia didn't know anything about Luke. But the point was that she was trying to bring, you know, the, the, the spirit pieces of the Resistance back together so that they could, you know, strike a, 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 a telling blow against the, uh, against the Empire. And uh, as soon as everyone became aware of that, uh, Obi-Wan immediately started to... Cons uh, conscribe, uh, uh, using the wrong word, uh, enlist Luke into that cause. Uh, but R2 had already done that by basically, you know, going off and maybe knowing that Luke would follow him because R2 knew who Luke was. It was 3CPO that had his memory wiped. Yeah. R2 knew exactly who Luke was and that he was the son of Skywalker and that, you know, even though it ended badly, Skywalkers are, are, are great Force users and uh, they're heroes. And I'm sure that in some way uh, it wasn't very hard for, you know, he basically left a, a really big bread trail for Luke to follow him on into the wilderness. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe I'm making that up. Maybe I'm putting that where it isn't. But if I was playing a character of R2-D2, then I would definitely say, oh, yeah, I got to get this kid, you know, the son of Skywalker involved in this because, you know, he's he's going to be just – I could tell that he's, he's a Skywalker, so he's going to be just as important to the future as Obi-Wan is. So just – and, of course, he already knows Leia – so he knows how important she is, even though at the time she was a passenger on the ship and he was just working for the captain. So he's actually a, a kind of way an embedded secret agent in the, uh, in the uh, rebellion. Who knows what other stuff he could have been doing? So if you're playing R2, then you could have been involved in all these things. And, and, is, and just like some people have made some stories about... Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks, about him being a secret Jedi master. By the same reason, you could just as easily have said that that uh, you know that R two D two was actually a, a a mastermind that was that was working all these people behind the scenes together to you know towards stopping the empires as well as he could because I mean he wasn't a great genius didn't have access to enormous resources but everywhere he 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 always seemed to be in the thick of things somehow yeah yeah and he and, and a couple of times he had some special equipment on him that was you know not definitely wasn't a uh, 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 standard issue like jump jets and such yeah. Yeah, they uh, they made a one of the things that had been pointed out throughout the thing is that normally astromech droids are wiped after every mission, um, and R two D two was never wiped throughout his entire lifetime. Throughout these all these movies that took place, what is it like thirty or forty years worth of movies here? You uh, know, let's see, episode one, thirty two years before four. Yeah, so yeah, we're throughout talking 65 year timeline. Yeah, R2 and he didn't has amassed lose. a lot of memories and experiences. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, he's been downloading databases and all this other stuff. So he probably has more memory in him than most humans. His hacking skills seem to be really awesome. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm sure that's also not normal for an astrodroid. 
Well, I'm guessing that's something. It, it, the The fact that they have a uh, a standard practice of wiping these astromech droids after every single thing, perhaps the fact that they are designed to be tied into the intimate workings of of a uh, fighter jets system. Perhaps that gives them some sort of ability to to bypass other things, and they need to make sure that they don't become conscious and self-sufficient in the way that R2 was. Because, I mean, from the very beginning, the, one of the first things we see of R2 is somebody being told to wipe him and them failing to do that. Though they do do it for 3CPO. Yeah. This is Bruce Sheffer saying... There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.